to Instructional Design Unleashed. My name is Carolyn Wagner. I'm an instructional designer who gets bored easily, so I try new things. Sometimes I succeed and other times I crash and burn. This podcast is your opportunity to come along for the ride. This is the second episode in a series that has two purposes. The first is to give graduate students at the University of New Brunswick a way to get to know their supervisors a little so they'll feel comfortable approaching them for the excellent advice the UNB faculty are always willing to give. The second purpose of this podcast is to haul you with me up the learning curve as I discover the best way to create a podcast for instructional designers. This episode is about Amanda Benjamin. We'll find out her nickname, learn how day camp counseling led her to become a professor of adult education, and discover the life event that transformed her approach to education. Here's a hint. It has 10 fingers and 10 toes. But before we meet Amanda, I want to mention something I did differently in this episode based on what I learned from my first episode about Steamer. I chose to record this entire interview in Amanda's office, which was a quiet, non-chaotic environment. This made the editing way easier, as I didn't have to get rid of a lot of loud, extraneous noise. One thing that was the same for both episodes is that I chose to interview people I already knew fairly well. I mention this to you because when you start out, you might also want to choose people you're comfortable with so you can be transparent about being new to the podcast process. Your friends will be patient with you as you learn to use the technology and practice asking good questions. If you don't already have patient friends, well, maybe you should think about getting new friends. But that's a topic for another day. Okay, let's meet Amanda. She's a colleague of Lyle Hamm, who was the subject of the first episode of Instructional Design Unleashed. When I interviewed Lyle, the first thing we talked about was his nickname, because Steamer, Steamer. like, why? what's up with that? So I thought yeah. it would be fun for a theme just to ask you, have you ever had a nickname yourself? Oh, sure. Um, most of my family call me Mandy. Okay. In fact, I, my, my, my sister, who also works for the faculty as a part-timer, uh, often calls me Mandy, and everybody looks around to figure out who Mandy is. Uh, and that's me. And then some of the people around here figured that out. So Steamer, for example, calls me Mandy. So uh, for those who start to really know me, who've known me now for, for so long, know okay. that uh, Jamie calls me Mandy. And, okay. Uh, yeah, Mandy is what uh, my family calls me. Okay, so just short form for Amanda. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you like your students to call you? I like my students to call me by my first name. Okay. Uh, and if they called me Mandy, that would also be okay. But okay. Um, my preference is not is to go by my first name. If yeah. students really need a title, then then professor is great or doctor if they need to. Yeah. But my preference is always if you notice on the front door of my office, my first name is there, uh-huh. not Doctor Benjamin. Right. Okay. Uh, and and that's not to say that the title isn't important, but it mm. is to say that um, it breaks down the barriers between mm. myself and students to understand that they can talk to me and yeah. come to me when they need me. Now, I understand you used to be a camp counselor. I was. When you were younger. Yeah, actually, it was through uh, running day camps in my hometown and putting myself through university that way that I came to understand who I was going to be as an educator. Uh, I didn't do the regular route that most of the other faculty here did. I don't have a BED, but I do have a master's in teaching adults. And I came to that after being a camp counselor. As a, a young woman, I, I started to run my town's day camps, and they sent me for training to learn about how to write program plans for camp. Uh, and then I moved into the area of looking at um, young people with special needs. And so I was sent into people's homes in Toronto to assess their children to see what kinds of needs they might have in going to camp. Oh, wow. Uh, and it required me to go into areas th- uh, that as a young, uh, fairly sheltered 
small town kid I had not been into. So for example, the Jane Finch corridor in Toronto was yeah. where I ended up doing a lot of home assessments about going to camp in Toronto. Wow. Uh, and it opened my eyes to the things I had been sheltered about, to some of the privileges that I had as a young person. Uh, and it got me really excited to think about what my future might be post a degree in English literature. Uh-huh. And so, uh, it, uh, it started me thinking about what, what I would be like if I did recreation. Now, one of the best things that ever happened to me was getting rejected from a graduate program in recreation. Oh, really? Because uh, it sent me to Concordia as a master's student to do a master's in teaching adults. Oh, okay. Uh, and I began to think about what it was like to train adults to learn how to be camp counselors. I asked Amanda to tell me a bit more about the types of campers she worked with. She also revealed what she wore on her first day as a teacher. Uh, we had high-functioning autism, uh-huh. uh, young people with Down syndrome, uh, developmental delays, and my job was to figure out how, to, what kinds of support they might need in order to go to camp. And, and it was a really important job because if I said no, there were parents there who wouldn't get any respite for the summer. Oh. And, but at the same time, I had to weigh what the campers' needs are and whether or not they would fit into the camping uh, setting that we would have, and to think about how I might adapt the programs uh, to include and uh, it it certainly has shown me how far we've come in terms of how adult learners with exceptionalities and how we reframe these things and mm. how we send young untrained kids mm. to do some of this work. So is that still time. done? Is that I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been a long time since I did that. Yeah. So the, so those were the moments of, of camp, but uh, definitely definitely um, helping young people in wheelchairs to access swimming pools and oh, wow. accessibility and. Yeah. Uh, and the importance of program planning uh, because you would have to teach these young camp counselors how to program plan for for young children Uh, and uh, yeah I think it was the first time I'd ever been sent away for training anywhere as well okay I remember buying uh, it was the 80s and I bought myself a green lime green suit that I wore when I was training staff and it was short (laughs) so it was silk and it had big shoulder pads and I think I looked like my mother Uh, but that was yeah that was the hallmark of my training. After the break we'll hear about how becoming a parent transformed Amanda's university teaching and how adult learners are not that different from child learners. This podcast is brought to you by absolutely nobody. There are no sponsors for this experiment, which is great because I'm free to create whatever I want. This advertising break is just here to let you rest your ears before the next act in this three-act podcast. Enjoy. Before recording this interview with Amanda, I emailed her husband, Jamie. He's a journalism professor who's also a friend. I figured he'd be cool with me approaching him for background on Amanda. I asked whether there were any particular stories I should ask Amanda to tell me, things I might not think to ask on my own. Angel that he is, he got back to me right away. One of his suggestions was to ask how becoming a parent later in life had influenced Amanda's university teaching. Now, I totally get that asking a female professional to talk about how her parenting duties affect her work is not something a wise interviewer would normally do. But I took Jamie's prompting as a sign that this particular interviewee would actually welcome the question. So I went for it. This is something that Jamie suggested I ask you about. It's not something I would have ever brought up of my own thinking. Anyways, he said that you became a parent later in life. And he said I should ask you about how that has affected or influenced your pedagogy. 
Yeah, being a parent later in life has had a big impact on my on my pedagogy. I think because I teach adult learners and I, I focus on adult education, it was a part of understanding what it meant. You can, in theory, you can hear about how adults are busy. They need to be goal oriented in how they learn. They they're they're going back to school often to meet a need. But I don't think I really understood the nature of what it was like to also be a parent and a learner mm-hmm. and a parent and a scholar. And many of my students will tell you that as I became a parent, my examples shifted on how I would talk about certain ideas and 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 theories. And uh, and being a parent has. Uh, has been probably the biggest learning journey for my own learning in the last few years. In fact, I learned a lot from you. I remember uh, going on faculty events with a young baby Mm. and having sort of the more senior moms talk to me about what it was like to parent. Mm. And it's that community of parenting uh, that uh, I I really thought about how people come to learn things as they get older. Uh, And uh, and she was my biggest learning journey, especially because she was hard to get. And people don't realize that the path to motherhood is not straight Mm -hmm. and so I always again I equate it to some of the challenges my own students have had and some of whom won't or can't or don't want to have children Mm -hmm. and so I'm very careful in how I think about representing motherhood in in Mm -hmm. classrooms at the same time yeah Yeah. but yeah she was a big part of my own learning journey I think about all the things I learned from when she was born and I keep learning now that she's eight Mm -hmm. almost Mm -hmm. and it's a daily journey certainly do use parenting as a as a big example for me uh, these days on how how learning happens and how we acquire language watching Hannah learn French is a really good example mm, of that mm-hmm. uh, and so her language watching her language acquisition and how she made connections um, and I teach a course on adult learning mm-hmm. so uh, we often think that learning in adulthood and learning in childhood are different mm-hmm. and as my colleagues in, in early childhood and I often talk about they're very much similar wow good andragogy is good pedagogy wow and so um, so I use Hannah's learning as a good example of how adults also learn in adulthood in similar ways to children yeah. the difference being the amount of experience you bring to the scenario right and which is why adult education as a field of study focuses so much on on that experience that you bring with mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But does adult education also bring a certain amount of unlearning? Like with children, if Absolutely. they're coming fresh, everything's new and they just accept it. But with adults, sometimes you have to break old habits or no, or is that I, I not a thing? Children have to unlearn too. Oh, okay. Most, most recently, my best example of that is uh, my child was sure she would never ride a bike. Mm. would not get on a bike fell off the bike this was not something she was ever going to do yeah. uh, she could ride a scooter and that's all she needed okay. uh, and it took some work to unlearn that fear of you, you can do this yeah. like, if, once, you, once you get on that bike you're going to keep going and yeah. it's really interesting she has and I think adult learners are very similar mm. once you help them to understand that it's scary mm-hmm. that they're going to fall off sometimes that they have to get back on and keep going uh, you see adult learners blossom. Um, the fears they bring with them to classrooms are very similar to the same fears that young people bring when they're learning something new. So I, I think there's so many crossovers between early childhood and, and adult learning. That is super cool. Oh, I yeah. love that. Yeah, I love I, that. I love that. I, I have, it's a population of students where I know I'm needed. Mm-hmm. And half of what I, I think I do as a professor here is listen. Mm. to the things that are going on in their lives, to understanding how things are hard, to the complexities of being an adult who's returning to school. 
okay. uh, and the and the requirements of family. Uh, a, a good example of that is when my students are struggling with parenting at the same time as going to school. It's, yeah. it's something I understand. I struggle with being uh, working and, and having a parenting at the same time. Yeah. And so yeah. these are things we can connect on and talk about mm-hmm. and then figure out strategies for, so what do you do? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like that mm-hmm. coffee clutch of mothers who talk about parenting. So what did you do when your child wouldn't eat or wouldn't <laughs> ride a bike? Yeah. Right? Yeah, we've all been there. That's right. For sure. Yeah. So at the same time, you're saying you try to be sensitive and inclusive of those who aren't parents or who won't be parents. Yeah, I had a lot of difficulty having a baby. And mm. so I'm very conscious of what it felt like and what it, that experience of not being able to and how it defines so many people's mm. existences. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, so I'm very conscious with my students to not only use parenting and to talk. And, and one of the defaults for adult learners often is to talk about their children. Okay. Uh, and so to talk about when we don't talk about our children or how do we talk about our professional practices in ways that are that uh, and to navigate some of the different life experiences that the students bring with them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes it's infertility. Sometimes it's choice. Sometimes it's complex lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so really understanding those complex lives. And if I talk about my complex life, I think students connect with me in those ways. Mm-hmm. Jamie said to ask you about um, creating safe spaces that you're yeah. really, you're really, and this sort of t- reminds me, it sort of ties into that. So I guess my question is, what tools do you give educators to help them make their classrooms safe spaces for everyone? Yeah, um, this is an interesting concept. It's one I talk about with my students because I actually don't think classrooms are safe spaces. Hmm. I think we can make them safer. Okay. And that's my, always my goal is to make safer spaces. Okay. Um, but I don't think they're ever really that safe. There's always a power dynamic. As a professor, I walk in the room and I'm grading you and uh, I have expectations of how you are to behave and there's classroom codes of conduct. And, and people are human and you can't control every human being in your classroom. Okay. So, so my, my strive is to, know, is to explain that there aren't safe spaces, safe spaces but there are safer spaces. Oh, okay. And how we make those spaces safer are to understand uh, differences of opinion, mm-hmm. uh, to not tolerate homophobia, uh, Islamophobia, uh, and other forms of oppression, which are important to me to, to recognize in classrooms. Mm-hmm. At the same point, to make it safe enough to ask questions where the words are inadequate. So you can ask questions that are difficult and not know things, mm-hmm. but, but we also need to be able to create spaces where we're not furthering oppressions on, on people mm-hmm. of color, mm-hmm. of, of different gender identities, uh, and so how I make those spaces safer. Talking at the beginning of my class every year now about gender pronouns is an important start. Right. Uh, and I, I, and to, to tell them my rules, my, my favorite example, teaching example is um, I had a student who wanted to talk about how she didn't believe that trans identities were valid identities. Okay. Um, but one of my students, and before I could even speak, one of the students spoke up and said, have you read Amanda's syllabus? It's not okay to talk like this in this classroom. Oh, wow. And so, so that's one of the ways I set, my, I set those conversations at the beginning of classrooms. Okay. okay. Um, we talk about what's okay and yeah. what's not okay and how do you get to be a learner and a participant in a space where people can feel safe. Yeah. So what happened next with that student who, who said that and was shut down? Like, how, yeah. did, how did that unfold then? Uh, they... They chose, they heard, 
and they backed off a little bit, okay. but it was a core belief for that person. Yeah. And so uh, we struggled to figure out how to engage in a class. As long as that person's able to engage in a classroom where they're respectful to their classmates right. and understand that voicing that can do harm, right? Uh, they respect. Uh, they were asked to respect the syllabus rules okay. and the rules created by the classroom together. Because I always, on the first day of class, talk about in a classroom. What are, what are our community rules? What's right. important for us? Or what values do we hold? And what needs to be upheld in a classroom? And how okay. do we uphold it? Okay. And so when you set those rules often at the beginning, uh, they, 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 they manage it amongst themselves. Hmm. Uh, and I'm really clear to talk about, about how we don't further oppression in classrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my goal, and I'll make mistakes. Not and 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 so, modeling my own mistakes is really good examples. Um, sometimes uh, it's hard to remember pronouns, and if you misgender, I stop the class and I talk about, well, that was my mistake, and that's not what my, my intention was. Let me talk about how I make that better or what I do mm-hmm. next. Mm-hmm. So I model my own behavior on how I okay. want my classrooms okay. to to exist. After the break, Amanda will tell us what not to do when we try to help young people make a transition to adulthood. Welcome to the second commercial break. Instead of a commercial, let me tell you something I learned in using Anchor to make my first podcast episode. I was surprised to see that after splitting my audio clips into a gajillion little sections to get rid of the parts I didn't want, and inserting various transition sounds and so on, Anchor left these all as separate little bits with their own labels, so anyone listening on the Anchor platform could see the Frankenstein's monster I had created. I didn't love this feature, so I emailed Anchor to see what's up. They said they're working on it, but yeah, currently there's no way to smush clips back together after you've separated them. Ew. So for this episode, I created, I recorded an anchor because it was easy, then downloaded the clips and edited them in the free Audacity editing software before re-uploading them to Anchor, where I added the transitions and music and all that before publishing. In her research, Amanda focuses on how young people make the transition to adulthood. She's a critic of the New Brunswick government's emphasis on entrepreneurship because it doesn't take into account all the supports and background skills an entrepreneur requires. In some of your writing, you've talked about the difference it makes when we use individualistic terminology to talk about young people rather than using language and expectations that position youth as members of a community, especially in the workplace. So I'm just wondering if you have any stories to tell about why this matters, or can you unpack this idea a little bit more for me? I'm very interested in how young people transition to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Most of my writing in my in my academic career has focused on youth. Where I teach adult education, I study youth. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in how young people transition to adulthood. And one of the things that I see happening in the transitions to adulthood is the move away from um, social programs that help young people learn what they want to do when they grow up uh, and ways to explore careers that are more open to a more individualistic uh, understanding of how young people transition. Mm-hmm. So specifically, uh, we're encouraging entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. and in entrepreneurship, it's a um, it's a bit of a misnomer for 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 a job getting strategy. Yeah. Because who's able to to be an entrepreneur in their life? Usually, they're middle class, uh, white, heterosexual uh, young people who have a great deal of family support mm-hmm. in order to be able to explore being entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is that it it puts 
job failure solely on the back of the young person. And so that move to individualism uh, when it comes to jobs and careers is something that I'm I'm quite interested in. And the piece I'm working on most recently is this move uh, is the relationship between this between entrepreneurship and precarious employment. Mm-hmm. And so we we want people to get jobs, but we are not talking about what a sustained jobs. We're looking at short term, no benefit, uh, quick turnover kinds of jobs mm-hmm. um, that don't provide a long term career that many young people are promised through career education in schools. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about when I'm writing. So, like, what advice would you even give to a young person in New Brunswick who doesn't have all those family connections, isn't that, you know, white, heterosexual, middle-class kind of person, and yet here they are being told, oh, you need to become an entrepreneur. Like, is it even, is it possible for them to do this? No, I actually think that the the entrepreneurship route is is a scary one. Mm. Uh, We know that 70% of businesses fail, so why is this the route we're going for helping young people decide what they want to do when they grow up? Mm -hmm. I... I think that there has to be a good balance for young people between trades options mm-hmm. and uh, different forms of work and and you and, and looking at, at, at traditional jobs that people think come with status right mm-hmm. doctor mm-hmm. lawyer engineer mm-hmm. I, I think that young people need to be given more knowledge about what's available except that what ha- what what jobs exist by the time they get there shift so quickly mm. uh, and so that yeah. shifting pattern so so where would I go with that I would suggest for young people in schools critical thinking skills so that they can navigate some of the choices they're going to have to make right and so teaching them to think about what it is that they are really interested in and why they're interested in it Uh, and then how you might get there one of the things I I find often talking to young people is that um, they might want to to, to reach a certain career, but they don't know how to get there. Yeah. And so how do we provide the, the tools for young people to know how to get what it is they're interested mm-hmm. in doing or mm-hmm. what process they might have to go through? Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember once interviewing a young person who was, they were quite young and being asked to make, make um, course decisions about where they were going to end up, and they're like, I'm going to be a doctor. Okay. And I said, you know, being a doctor takes mm, 10 years. Oh no, I'm not going to be a doctor. <gasps> it's it's a really interesting thing because so really understanding the nature of what a career is and yeah. what a job is, yeah. uh, I think is really essential. Yeah, and especially for kids who don't come from a family where parents have had years and years of That's education, right. like they don't necessarily know what that all entails. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also I would want young people to know they have agency, mm-hmm. um, because we often feel really powerless at that age, yeah. uh, not knowing what to do or where to go for help. Yeah. So, uh, who to ask those questions to? Uh, so unpack that word agency. I mean, I know what you mean, but yeah, you know, agency, not everybody listening might a, not. A sense of um, being an actor in your own life, mm-hmm. a sense of making the choices that you have the ability to make choices that will have impact. And that doesn't take away from the systemic things that might be barriers, yeah. but to ha- to know that there is some ability in your life to 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 maybe achieve what you want. Yeah. started doing this I was in the UK uh, and in uh, areas of uh, of London and, and other parts of the U- of, of England mm-hmm. uh, and my favorite was the young person who wanted to be a power ranger 
and and it was really sort of and and that was the year that CSI CSI was really big okay. and so they all wanted to be crime scene investigators and I was always fascinated by these these aspirations that were so high uh, I will be forever struck by that research because one of the things that we did with that research was we found out the assumption is that kids who come from lower socioeconomic areas have low aspirations mm. and it's not true yeah Right, they have really high aspirations. Like I want to be, I want to be prime minister. Okay. Uh, and it's interesting to think about when that those aspirations start to shift. And it's usually when you hit up against barriers. Right. Right. Or you can't get into the courses that you want, or you're not doing well in an area. Okay. Uh, and that's when you start to see the aspirations shift. But really, young children dream high. Yeah. And so I'm. So always, how do we not kill that? I don't know. Uh, I think. I think it's really simple about um, so one of the ways we don't kill it is we don't tell them to have a plan B, hmm. right? We um, we tell kids from low, higher socioeconomic status families to go and do what you dream of doing, yeah. and we tell kids who we were when we're worried about their their backgrounds to have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. Oh, interesting. And so by having similar expectations of all young people, I think, okay. and and at the same time recognizing the different barriers that they bring with them. Yeah. In case you're still wondering whether you'd enjoy having Amanda as a prof, wonder no longer. She really wants you to succeed. I'll let her explain her secret sauce. I think the most important thing I would want my students to know is that, that their professors are human beings. And most of the time our doors are open and ready and willing to help and to support. Modeling caring is really important. Mm. I think the academics are important. I think as a classroom you can learn together. Um, but when you actually care for who your students are and, and their own experiences and, and when things are tough or when they're great, uh, and to share in those experiences, it, it's the greatest joys of my life are when students email me to say, guess what happened? It made sense to me all of a sudden. Mm. Um, I, yeah, those are the moments that I really relish about teaching. Yeah. Uh, and getting to teach students from a, um, a variety of areas in New Brunswick, so really different life experiences coming from smaller areas of New Brunswick who are coming in remotely Mm. students who are in my online classes who are coming back to school for the first time in 20 30 Mm. 40 years Mm -hmm. um and how you help to shepherd them into those spaces and to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and to remember that learning is hard no matter what you're going to walk and it's going to be hard yeah but you will get used to it and you will find your way through to Instructional Design Unleashed. Check back soon for the next episode. My signature move is to use free online resources like Anchor and Weebly to create content. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on my free Weebly site at instructionaldesignunleashed.weebly.com. See you next time.